Good morning, Calvary Chapel. Great to see all of you guys. Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Hope you're enjoying Luke as much as I am. I love being in the Gospels. I love walking where Jesus walked and just following his life, and God always reveals new things. Hey, after this service, uh, we have lunch, extended cafe hours. We'll have sandwiches as well as uh, the other things that we have. And both our things after the third service are sold out. Our Illuminate for the Kids, where they're going through personality tests and life coaching is sold out. And so is Financial Peace. So great stuff going on uh, all day here. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for uh, the first service, Lord. We thank you for all the hearts and minds that were challenged there and the conversation and fellowship. Lord, as we continue through this service and the next and then on into our extracurricular activities, Lord, we just thank you that we can be a pillar and ground of truth. That in a world that is turned upside down, uh, we have your truth and it has set us free. And uh, Lord, we love following you. We love being here. And uh, we pray that you give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever started something from scratch? How many? Okay, now, I'm not talking about you changed jobs or careers or you went to a new school. I'm talking about you had an idea, fresh idea, and you raised all the capital and put all the infrastructure together and then kind of walked out on that plank and opened your doors for proverbial business. Let me see the hands again. How many of you have ever done that? Yeah, you talk to any of these people, you notice the hands got fewer? Uh, you talk to any of these people, they'll tell you it's not for the faint of heart. And it's a lot easier said than done. Let me give you some statistics. There's 28 million small businesses in America. More people actually work for small businesses than they do major corporations. Uh, let's say you had an idea. Uh, you want to start an NGO, a school, cool cafe, or some sports enterprise. If you opened your doors for business today, uh, in five years, half of you would be out of business. That's about the fallout. In 15 years, 75% of you would be out of business or closing your doors. That's how difficult it is out there. Uh, so when you go to a Starbucks, and by the way, that was a small business at one time. Whenever you go to something successful like that that's been around for a long, long time, um, that's an outlier. It's an anomaly. Uh, most things really do fail. Now, when it comes to churches, this is interesting. If you talk to church planners and read all those statistics, uh, they fare better, not much better, but they do fare better. And I have my own reasons why. First of all, the enterprise is more forgiving, isn't it? I mean, we're forgiving people. It's church. And then the other thing is Christians probably tolerate mediocrity uh, more than consumer-based things. Uh, but however, of all its startup churches that ever start, 80% never reach 250 members or more, and then hundreds and hundreds more close their doors every day. 21 years ago, we were a church plant. We were a startup. God had given us this dream, and uh, it was really born out of two Bible studies I had that grew quite well in Ridley Park in South Philly. And uh, I had this dream of a church in Delaware County, and I assembled a core group in my home where we took offerings together, we prayed together, we planned together, finally found a place to meet, and we were going to launch Sunday morning services. We were going to be a brand new church. I remember calling Pastor Steve the night before and asking him a critical question. Do you think anybody's going to show up? I mean, really, everybody has a church. Why would they come to our church? How would they even know we were there? And Steve, in his very reassuring way, said, well, yeah, like, uh, my wife will be there, your wife, the kids, your mom and dad, you know. And I'm like, okay, I, I, I'm comforted by that. And uh, we started that day with 50 people. It was a glorious day. And as I look back on our history, I wouldn't change much 
because we were definitely carried by God's spirit and he was moving this thing along. But I would change about almost everything I did that day. Uh, One of the things I would do, if I could do it all over again, I would actually tell people why we were starting a new church. That's not rocket science. I was 31 years old, but I never thought of it. I just got up there and preached, and that was it. If I had to do it over again, hey, this is why we're starting today. We started at a theater in Ridley Park that was on the corner. It was one of the oldest running theaters uh, in Pennsylvania. I kid you not, every other corner had a church of a different denomination. There were like eight churches in a two-block radius. There were hundreds of churches in Delaware County, but I never said why we were starting this particular church. The other thing I never did that day is I never shared the dream God had put on my heart. The dream of Christ followers getting together with no other agenda but to see God move in our midst. No titles, no, no prestige, just Wow, we could get together, unleash the Bible one verse at a time. What might God do? We would learn the joy of community, living life together, seeing our loved ones and our friends get saved and baptized, and we have. Watch our kids grow up and serve God, some of them in ministry. I never share with them that day that one day we might be so influential, we would reach beyond Delaware County, uh, into the inner city, and maybe even have ministry partners around the world. Never shared that maybe God would drop some cool initiatives on our lap, like Sizzling Summer, where we would see hundreds baptized every summer. Never talked about trips to Israel and Greece and Rome and many of the Bible lands and the retreats and all that we do now and probably take for granted. What I never did that day was give people a vision or a mission for what we were trying to do. Now, mission statements became all the rage probably in the mid-80s. They were around much longer than that. So now when you walk in your place of work, it's probably on the wall, it's probably in your, you know, the manual they give you. Everybody quotes it, and, and now life coaches are saying every individual should have a mission statement, and Christians should have life verses they live by. Why is this so popular? Why is it so important? There's probably a lot of reasons. Can I tell you one? Because you can't do everything. Does that make sense? You as an individual, if you have a mission statement for your life, that's really good because you can't do everything. Businesses can't do everything. Families can't. Schools can't. Churches certainly can't. I believe every church has certain giftings, passions, and resources that God wants to use and put together so that we could do a few things well. I have people come up to me every week, probably because they see some of our signature things like Compassion Weekend or Sizzling Summer, and they'll say, Pastor Bob, you need to support this, or we need to do this, or it's Right to Life Sunday, or World Communion Day, or, or so we, we need to support, you know, 50,000 sub-ministries. And I'm like, wait a second, time out. Time out. Those are all wonderful things, and maybe you can get passionate about it. But God's really called us to focus in and do a few things well. I want to bring to your attention that even Jesus, the Son of God, who could call a legion of angels at any time, was very focused on what he was called to do, and he did a few things well. How about the things Jesus never accomplished? While Jesus was on this earth, he never ended world poverty. He never overthrew the rogue political organizations that were oppressing people. He never wrote a book. He never entered into the social ills of the day, never ended homosexuality, infanticide, or slavery. 
And even though the Bible says he would enter places and heal everyone, sometimes he would walk in, heal one, and leave everybody in the condition they were in. Here's the point I'm trying to make. God sent his son to earth for a specific purpose at a specific time. Galatians tells us in the fullness of time, God sent for the son, born of a woman, born under the law, in alignment with Old Testament prophecies, for one particular reason, to redeem those born under the law. Salvation came to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. The angel told Mary, there is born today a savior, or excuse me, the shepherds, Christ the Lord. So how would Jesus launch his ministry? Well, the devil had an idea. Get up on the highest place of the most holy place, the temple. Jump down. The angels will catch you. Everybody will see it, and you'll be off and running. Mary had an idea. Take these six water pots and turn it into wine. That'll send a message. Uh, we would have probably added, you could start a slick marketing campaign, um, have, a, have a prayer gathering, some preaching seminar. Um, Jesus didn't do any of those things. But here's what he did do, and here's how he launched his ministry. It's in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. It says he came to Nazareth where he was raised or he had been brought up. Now, between him being filled with the Spirit at John's baptism until this time, and a whole year has gone by. It's called the silent or the hidden year. We have no record of it, no disciples, no apostles called. All we know is Jesus was going through the region teaching and preaching in the synagogues. His fame was going out, but we don't know much about it. But this was the day he would launch into full-time ministry, and he comes to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on a Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he found the place in the book, he, he found this place, and he read this, and there were no chapter breaks at the time, but we know now it's Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of God's favor. He closed the book, and it was a scroll. There were no books at the time. And he gave it back to the Hazan, the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he said to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, um, isn't this Joseph's son? Now, we look at this account, and to really understand it, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is a synagogue? Now, you all know what synagogues are. You've driven past them. Maybe you've worshipped in one. I grew up Catholic. And in the Northeast, we had a Jewish area, and there was a synagogue there. And I just always assumed that it was church for Jewish people. And guess what? That's really what it was. The synagogue was a gathering, okay? And to learn about the synagogue, this is strange. You can't go to the Old Testament. You'll never find it. And yet it's found 50 times in the New Testament. So the majority of what we know about the synagogue is found in the New Testament, the Mishnah, the Talmud, and then archaeology. And when you put it all together, here's what you'll discover. The synagogue did not originate in Israel. Strange fact. Here's the reason why. God had chosen Jerusalem as the place of worship. 
Moses was given a blueprint for a tabernacle, later a temple. Solomon built this temple. It was a place of sacrifice. It was very complex. There were priests. There was rotation of priests. There was incense. There was, there was offering. They butchered animals. So much went on there. It was very complex. And it was all looking forward to the work of Messiah. And that's why God said when you build it, build it exactly how I told you. So where did the synagogue arise? Well, it, ar- it arose in 587 B.C. when the Jews were taken captive to a foreign land to Babylon. They went to the land of idols. And when they got there, they, they thought, well, we don't have a temple. We're certainly not going to build one. Nebuchadnezzar's not going to build a temple. We're going to sacrifice animals. So they had this idea where they would band together and worship God, and they would meet as a group, and it was called a meeting place. Uh, the synagogue is a Greek term. It would come much later. Daniel, in the book of Daniel, remember, he would face Jerusalem. He'd open his windows and pray three times a day. That was the idea. So bands of people would come together to maybe recite scripture and pray. When they went back to Jerusalem, they thought, this is a great idea. We love the temple, and for the major feast days, we'll go there and sing the Psalms of Ascent, and it'll be a festive and joyous time. But since we can't always go there, and if you live far from Jerusalem, why don't we put a synagogue where we can find 10 Jewish men in every area? And that's exactly what happened. Now, it's not really far removed from what you and I do today. Uh, We meet here. I'm not saying this is the temple, but you get it. This is kind of big church. And then during the week, hopefully you're meeting in small groups, right? Serving groups, small groups, fellowship. Maybe you're on the worship team. If you don't believe this is true, read Acts chapter 2. God sweeps 3,000 people into the church the first day. 5,000 are at it later. And Acts 2.42 says they worship God in the temple because that was a large area. They could find an area of the temple courts where they could worship these brand new Christians. And then they met in homes, breaking bread, praying, and the apostles' teaching. Nothing's really ever changed. So the synagogue was a place of prayer and worship. It was a gathering area. Uh, Whenever we go to Israel, we go to Capernaum. It's one of my favorite places. And it's an archaeology site today, so it's like it has a garden atmosphere. But you can see there in Capernaum uh, the synagogue that Jesus literally was in. Now, the stones to about four feet are first century, and then after that it's a little more Byzantine in its structure. What I like about Capernaum, it kind of reminds me the way I grew up, is that in Jesus' day, in the first century, the synagogue became brick and mortar. So it was church for the Jews on Saturday, the Sabbath. But then the rest of the week, rabbis, itinerant rabbis would come and teach there. Kids would go to school. Weddings would take place there. It became like a community center. And I told you, I grew up Catholic. We were in parishes. You know what the word parish means? Around the corner. And well, guess where our church was? Around the corner. From everybody. Now, we didn't have a parking lot. You just walked there. And you were there like seven days a week. I went to Catholic school. I went to church on Sunday. Bingo, beef and beer. We'll talk about that another time. So, synagogue was a joyful place. Notice, however, what it says about Jesus in verse 16. He went to the synagogue as was his custom. You know what the word custom means? Habit. Jesus had this interesting habit of being in God's house once a week. And I'm just going to leave it there. 
Because if the Son of God needs it, we need it. Why? Because there's great messages there or worship? No, because, because we were meant to live in community. We never know what God will do on any given day. And the Bible tells us we should gather. Now, what did a synagogue service look like? Forget about what you've ever seen today. What did a first century synagogue service look like? Again, it's hard to piece it together. From everything we know, they would come in and there would be prayers and some singing. And then the attendant called the Hazan, he wasn't a pastor or a rabbi, he was just a caretaker, Jairus, by the way. Remember Jesus raised his daughter, uh, she was sick. Uh, he was the attendant at one of the synagogues. The attendant would go over to where the Torah scrolls were kept, and uh, he would get the Torah scrolls, and literally he would begin to march and then dance around while the Jewish people clapped. They were more Pentecostal than they were Presbyterian. And if you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, you know it, like, Hava, Nagila, Hava, and everybody claps, right? Uh, very festive time. Why? Because God was in their midst. Because when they were in Babylon, they said, well, we can't slaughter animals, but the scripture said God desires a clean heart greater than sacrifice. So their worship became learning and God in their midst through the Torah, through the word of God. And it was a very joyful time. The person who would read that day was chosen years in advance. It was a three-year cycle. So if you were a male in a synagogue like Nazareth, everybody knew when it was your turn, and sometimes it would be more crowded because they knew who was going to be there. I think this day in Nazareth, it was packed because Jesus' fame is going out. They've heard what he's done in Capernaum and other places, and I think people were hanging from the rafters. He was probably sitting in Moses' seat. He was handed the scroll, Everybody would stand when the word of God was read, and then Jesus gave a six-word sermon in Hebrew. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what was the response? Well, I was taught for years they wanted to stone him and cast him out of the city because he claimed to be the Messiah. But look in your Bible. That's not what it says. They marveled at his words that proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Which tells me there were other great candidates ahead of Jesus to be the Messiah. It also tells me he never had a halo around his head. He didn't look Italian or French like all the paintings we've seen. He didn't score all the goals in soccer when he was a kid. He didn't make people levitate. People always want to know, what did Jesus do for 30 years? Well, he did something real spiritual. He went to work every day. How's that? He was a carpenter, and he probably was nice to people and prayed and loved God, all the things we're called to do. Luke tells us he grew in stature and wisdom with man and God. But that day, this was the good boy comes home, and I think they were joyful. Let's put the mission statement up on the screen. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, his baptism, he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. You think people cheered or booed him when he said that? I think they cheered. Uh, God loves poor people. Deuteronomy, the whole system was to help marginalized people. Over 100 verses in the Old Testament about the fatherless, the widow, the orphan. Um, Nazareth was poor. Never mentioned in the Old Testament, never mentioned by Josephus or any of the great historians. Still poor today when we go there, by the way. So I think a great cheer went up. Next part of the mission statement, um, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted. 
Man, you live long enough on the earth, you're going to get your heart broken two or three times. Some of you are brokenhearted this morning. There had to be brokenhearted people in that room. I think a cheer went up. To proclaim at liberty to the captives, they were all captive to Rome. Recovery of sight to the blind, there were no hospitals. They see blind people at the gates all the time. To set at liberty the oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, we can't prove this, it's conjecture. Some scholars believe it was the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was a year where debt would be erased and lamb would go back. Uh, the Jews weren't really well at keeping the Sabbath or the year of Jubilee, but some scholars believe this was the year of God's favor, and so they were happy. And they gave Jesus the obligatory, socially acceptable thing to do after a sermon, great sermon, way to go. And uh, if Jesus would have left it there, they would have carried pictures of him in their wallet and would have loved him for the rest of his life. But Jesus' mission was not to be liked, but to tell the people the truth. And he looks at that crowd, and something's not resonating in his spirit. So he gives them a little Bible study. And he says, somewhere around verse 25, I say to you truly, there were many widows in the day of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. She was a pagan. So Jesus is saying, you know, Elijah was sent to this widow, but God looked to and fro all through Israel and finally went to a Gentile. And then he tells a story about naming the Syrian. Uh, the same thing, God, God looked all around, but, you know, found this leper. And then it says, they were enraged. This hometown crowd that was cheering becomes a murdering band like you could never imagine. And they took up stones to throw at him, took him to the end of the city, and wanted to throw him off the cliff. Remember, that was one of Satan's temptations, by the way, to take him, show him all the kingdoms of the world. What turned them on their side? And by the way, you think your church split was bad you were in? This is one of the worst things that's ever happened in a church setting in history. What happened? What went wrong here? Well, in Jesus' little Bible study about these two Gentiles, they understood what he was saying. That it wasn't God's people who had all the resources, the word of God, the temple, and, and everything God would give that were in compliance with the work of God. It was actually people outside the camp. And isn't it interesting that the gospel for 2,000 years would be propagated by those outside the camp, by Gentiles. Jesus' message that day that infuriated them infuriates people today because Jesus said it doesn't matter where you're born. I don't care if you're Jewish. I don't care if you claim Abraham's your father. John the Baptist said God can raise up from these stones children to Abraham. I don't care where you're born. I don't care what you do. I don't care who your parents are. I don't care what synagogue you belong to. I don't care if you put the first brick in. God is looking for people of faith. And if he has to use a Gentile widow, he will. And if he has to use a Syrian, he will. If he has to use a former drug addict, he will. But God wants to put new wine in new wineskins. Jesus said, my day has come. Here's my mission. This is what God's about to do. And he's either going to use people who understand 
that they need to be broken, or he's going to go find other people who could be moved by faith, but God will find them. And he put his finger on what was driving them that day, nationalism, pride, superiority. And you think, well, how could they be that way? I would never be that way. How could they do that? Well, how in the early part of the 19th century could you sit in an all-white congregation believing that black people couldn't drink from water fountains or drive on buses or even be in your congregation? This is why I say all the time, I am not worried that some of you are going to go out and commit adultery or steal or any of those things. You know what I'm more worried about? That we'll become Pharisees. That we'll become like these people. That when God wants to move, we're so rigid, we're so narrow-minded, we're so prideful that we can't move where he wants to go because we don't understand where his heart is. Now, there's another thing to learn from Jesus' mission statement. Look on the screen. This is Luke 4, 18, 19. I'm going to play a little trick on you. Look down at the bottom. I'm just going to change the scripture to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Notice, nothing changes except what you see in bold, and it's the one thing Jesus never said. He stopped reading, and he never said it was the day of vengeance of our God. That was not fulfilled in his ministry. Which has led some scholars to say we've been living in a comma for 2,000 years. Not a coma, although some of the church is in a coma. Uh, But we've been living in a comma for 2,000 years. What is the day of vengeance of our God? It is the most documented time in the entire word of God. In Daniel chapter 9, it's the 70th week of Daniel, which is a seven-year period, three and a half years of peace, three and a half years of judgment. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble, a time, time, and a half a time. Revelation calls it 1,260 days. Jesus said, unless these days would be shortened, no flesh would survive. So go figure that one out. Uh, Look through history and think of a time where no flesh could survive. Certainly not with bows and arrows, okay? Now, we have nuclear warheads, we could destroy each other today, but the destruction of Revelation is not by man. The Great Tribulation, Revelation 6 to 13, trumpet seals and vials will be poured out where God, who is just, will also judge the world. He's the justifier of sin, but he's also just. And Jesus Christ will be revealed, and that's what Revelation means, the unveiling. He will be revealed not as the shepherd with a little sheep around his shoulder, but sitting on a steed, treading out the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. But Jesus never read it because that's not why he was sent to earth this day. Jesus said that day is coming, and that'll be fulfilled, but it's not this day, and it hasn't been that day for 2,000 years. And it answers a theological question that has stumped people through the ages that if God loves the oppressed, right? You look through that list and you think, wow, that's what movies are made of. Oh, we're going we're gonna to help the poor and the brokenhearted. Yeah, we come out of the movie theater, we love it. God loves the oppressed. But the theological question is if God loves the oppressed, why doesn't he just wipe out the oppressor? So look at sex trafficking today. These innocent little girls are taken from their homes and ravaged and, and their oppressors live high on the hog. Why doesn't God just send a lightning bolt from heaven and wipe them out? In fact, why doesn't God just wipe out all sinners? He could do it, right? Certainly has the power, so why doesn't he do it? 
The reason why God doesn't do it is because if God wiped out all the sinners, there would be no saints. Does everybody get that? Because the Apostle Paul would have been wiped out, consenting to the death of Stephen, a violent and insolent man murdering the church. You wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. And by the way, uh, Ananias and Sapphira in the early church, God has the power to do it. Aren't you glad that program ended real early? You know, kind of cool. I'm glad because I wouldn't be here. What we find out in Nazareth is God loves the oppressors and the oppressed. He loves widows. Luke's going to name more widows by name than any other gospel. More widows will be named than any other, all the gospels combined. God wants widows to have sustenance, but he also loves those who oppress them, the tax collectors. He's going to call one. His name's Levi. Write the book of Matthew. He's going to tell Zacchaeus, come out of a tree. Why? Because God loves oppressors and the oppressed. He's going to go to a house of Simon the Pharisee because he loves this self-righteous man as much as he loves the woman who's washing his feet with her tears. Because Jesus is a Savior, he loves both. Let's take the logic flow. The logic is widows need to be cared for. Does God love widows because they lost their husband? Some regard. But he loves them more because they had no sustenance. They had no life insurance. There, was, there, there were no death benefits in that day, no social security. And, and by the way, if you were a woman, um, the more children you could bear the better off you were. And if you were past childbearing age like Naomi in the story of Ruth, you were, you were done. But if we follow the logic, are widows sinless? Do they have upstanding character just because they're widows? Can't widows be vile and bitter and angry and just like non-widows? And then what about those brutal tax collectors and oppressors? What's their backstory? Were they beaten by their parents? Were they abused? Never had any self-esteem put in their life? Jesus' mission his first time around was to save everyone, oppressed and the oppressors. And it hasn't changed for 2,000 years. I shared last week the concept that if God put a fence around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam and Eve got zapped every time they touched it. Well, that wouldn't mean they love God. It just means they didn't want to get zapped, right? And it's the same thing today. God's given a long rope. Now, don't misunderstand, okay? Oppressors usually get caught. Last time I checked, Osama bin Laden's at the bottom of the ocean. Saddam Hussein's dead. Ceausescu. Uh, the people in charge don't bear the sword in vain. So judgment does come. But Jesus said, this is not this day. See, they weren't enraged at his messiahship. They were enraged at his mission because he was declaring that every one of us brings something to a table that has brought this world to the place it is. And Jesus said, I have to start here where people need to be broken and realize that sin's on the inside. And when they heard this, they wanted to stone him. I thought of a way to bring this home, and so I searched for something, and I found something that happened in my life that was very unique and interesting and something I had to work through. Um, you know, like everybody else in the early 90s, I was caught up in the OJ thing, and uh, actually the first day of the trial, I really did have the flu. 
And when I called into my place of work, nobody believed me. They thought I just wanted to watch it on television. But we all remember where we were if we're old enough when the verdict came, right? And I remember the day of the verdict. I thought O.J. was guilty. I looked at the evidence. I thought he killed Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman that day and thought there should be justice. Every part of us wants justice. I remember when the verdict came down not guilty of actually being glad, which was very conflicting for me. There was a tension there like, why am I glad? This man deserves justice, and he's just been set free. I remember one time where someone asked for a meeting with me, and they had a legal pad, a yellow legal pad, of seven pages of accusations against me. That's hard to sit through. And I thought on Judgment Day, the Bible says every word we've ever said out of order is recorded. How, wow, forklifts of legal pads would come in against me. And then I thought of the only words I'd ever want to hear. Not guilty. Not guilty. That's all I want to hear. I want Jesus to stand up and say, he's not guilty because I've taken his place. See, the tension in me that day should be in every Christ follower. Yes, we want justice. We want justice, but we can look at a human being and say, oh my gosh. Now I understand that scripture. God is long-suffering that none would perish, but all would come into everlasting life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him would be saved. Why has God let it go on this long? He's waiting for the last person possible to bend their knee and accept Christ as Savior. Because he's both just and the justifier of sin. And they couldn't get it. And we have trouble getting it. I used to sit in a professional office with engineers and accountants and all, and we had no cubicles back in the day. We actually had no computers. And um, we had a couple of mainframes, and all our desks were butted up one to another. So this one guy would read the newspaper literally out loud every day at lunch. And they would always read about a guy on a subway who killed somebody or somebody did this or somebody did that. And then and people would say, you know what they should do with that guy? Right, this is America where we have a judicial system, right? You're innocent until proven guilty. You know what they should do with that guy? They should hang him in chains and then slowly dip him in acid while they're pulling his fingernails out. These are professional people, by the way. See, we want justice when we see sin on someone else. And God is a God of mercy for both the oppressed and the oppressors. There's coming a day where God will judge the earth, and he'll set things right. Till that day... God is asking, how willing are we to be part of this mission? And so as the story unfolds, we're going to see Jesus get a title. It's not a good title, by the way. It's not a title he put on himself. It was a title of his enemies. He was the friend of sinners and tax collectors. Now, I'm going to teach you something as we go through this, because people love to write books, and they love to be on either side, and they keep selling, and I don't know who's reading them. But everything I read in Scripture is that we have to go out and compel them to come in. We have to be willing to accept them as they are. Jesus will find Levi at the tax station, and he will, he will be a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and he was willing to go where no one was willing to go. But Jesus didn't bring them all to the synagogue, because that was a holy place. Matthew's not there. Um, the woman with seven demons isn't there this day. 
So we're going we're gonna to make our way through all these both and kind of scenarios that people have struggled with. Let, let's just leave it for this. The rest of Luke, as it rolls out, is going to be the loving picture of a Savior who, who will heal the blind, minister to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, heal diseases, and then also minister to the people who are pressing all those people. And it's a beautiful story, and it's wonderful, because as we look through history and see God's long-suffering, I look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar, it amazes me. The lengths God would go to to save a man has always amazed me and will always amaze me. Because the Bible says there's none noble, none righteous. And the only thing that will ever keep you out of the kingdom of God is your own self-righteousness. I was born in America. I give the priest a bottle of EO every Christmas. I tithe. I, you know, I do this. I do that. No. It's not a matter about what you're doing. It's a matter of what's already been done. A loving Savior was willing to give his life that we might be saved. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for that day in the synagogue in Nazareth where a mission of grace was introduced. A mission of wonderful, absolute atonement for everything we've ever done. Lord, it's unleashed a movement that's turned this world upside down. It's unleashed a movement that's the only thing keeping this world from destroying itself. And Lord, I pray that we would be a congregation that's pliable, that you would pour new wine into these wineskins. Lord, don't make us rigid. Don't let us become brick and mortar. Lord, don't let us hold everything in for ourselves, but may we be the people that go on the highways and byways, compelling people to come in, to join this tribe, Lord. We thank you for the truth in the synagogue that day. We thank you for truth this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. Uh,